KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we're still thinking about the recall in San Francisco of Chesa Boudin, the progressive prosecutor. Pundits everywhere are saying that means Democrats need to abandon their commitment to reforming the police and the criminal justice system. Peter Dreyer does not agree. He'll explain why later in the show. But first, the January 6th hearings have been powerful and pretty overwhelming in showing that Trump knew he had lost and that Trump himself was directly responsible for the violent insurrection on January 6th, seeking to overturn the election. For comment on the hearings so far, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. And I should add that the Pro- American Prospect has put me on the hearings beat. So every day that there's a hearing, I will have an article up about it. And so far, they have been terrific. I didn't expect the first two hearings to be so devastating. How did you feel about them? Well, I, I agree. Now, on the one hand, I mean, I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting to Watergate, which yeah. you and I are old enough <laughs> to remember the Sam Irvin hearings. On the one hand, Unlike the Watergate hearings, which were kind of an exercise in revelation for the senators, as well as for uh, those of us who watched it, the January 6th committee has had a good deal of time well into last year to collect evidence, to collect depositions, to collect videotape testimony and so on. So they had really already a kind of a powerhouse presentation ready, and they have shown it to us. Well, let's talk about the second day. That was the one about the origins of the big lie that Trump won the election. One of the most striking things to me about day two was that all the, test, all the testimony came from Republicans. They were, these were Trump's campaign directors, close associates, advisors, his inner circle. And virtually all of them, with just a couple of exceptions, told him he had not won the election. He should not go out there and claim victory. Uh, Even Ivanka told him this. I mean, let's think about Watergate. Would Trisha Nixon ever have told Nixon he had to resign, you know? So it was striking to me that the Republicans were so strong in telling him not to do this. Well, I mean, you can't get testimony on on this particular matter from anyone who wasn't in direct contact (laughs) with Trump. And that limits the fields to Republicans and uh, an overlapping category, complete maniacs. Uh, (laughs) And the Republicans who had were even still uh, defending Trump in their public verbiage were all telling him he had lost. And this was, as you said, his inner circle at the White House. It was also the top officials at the Department of Justice and most memorably Bill Barr, who was Trump's appointed attorney general, whom he uh, had replaced uh, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions with uh, because Sessions wasn't personally loyal enough to him. Barr uh, rather memorably testified in the footage we saw in the second hearing, that Trump was detached from reality, which of course raises the question of actually whether Trump has ever been attached to reality <laughs> since his uh, his campaign and much of even his you know career as a uh, self promoter has been based on lies. With that caveat, yes, 
even by the standards of people who accepted the normal level of uh, Trump lying, uh, which is to say, obviously, his top campaign officials and so on, even they uh, said, well, look, you're just completely denying reality. You lost. And let us remember that Team Normal, as they called themselves, as opposed to the what the other group that you call the complete maniacs. Yeah. Team Normal, these are not friends of ours. This guy, Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager. What is he doing now in the midterms? I think he's working in Wyoming. He's working, uh, yes, for the uh, uh, Republican seeking to unseat Liz Cheney for her lack of uh, uh, loyalty and her unexpected uh, possession of, you know, a backbone when it comes to calling out Trump on lying about the election. Uh, So uh, Bill Stepien is a complete dyed-in-the-wool Republican, but he could not lie to Trump about what happened uh, last, uh, you know, in November of 2020. To it, he lost. And, And of course, the other institution outside the White House that didn't lie was Fox News. This is some of the most interesting testimony. Trump's favorite source of information about the world, Fox News, we got the kind of play-by-play of when Fox News called Arizona for Biden late on election night, which meant it was going to be virtually impossible for Trump to win. And of course, Trump considered that uh, treason. It's interesting that Fox News, who we consider to be such tight allies with Trump, for them, election night, the opponents aren't the Democrats. Their opponents are CNN, MSNBC, ABC. They're the ones that they want to beat by calling first the decisive uh, state. I hadn't expected this from Fox News, but they reminded us that there is this there's really two different ver- two different forces in, in, inside Fox News, or at least there were on election night. Well, there were on election night. And to my surprise, yes, the committee called Chris Steyerwalt, who was their guy in charge of their projections desk. And he was, among other things, methodologically fascinating how he thought they had the best modeling for every uh, every swing state. And that uh, Arizona was going according to a modeling that showed a a slight win for Joe Biden, which is why they called it. But we need to put this in the past tense because Chris Steyerwalt was fired. Yes. The head of Fox News was fired. Yes. uh, And uh, the uh, share of uh, overt rather than covert commentary in the Fox News broadcast day was, uh, was increased. There was a part of Fox News that was the big lie. And there was a part of Fox News that was actually a news organization. And Fox, you know, resolved this uh, contradiction by getting rid of the news organization. But there was that news organization still there on election night 2020. And we heard from it. And let's talk about the opening hearing, which was really powerful. Uh, The most striking thing for me uh, about the attack on the Capitol was that the Proud Boys who led the assault did not even go to the Stop the Steal rally. They did not listen to Trump's speech. They were not fired up by Trump's fight like hell rhetoric. They went straight to the Capitol and prepared to attack at the point at which the marchers who Trump called to leave the Stop the Steal rally and march on the Capitol. When the marchers arrived, the Proud Boys would be ready to fight the police and open the way in. That I had not heard before. No, and they had footage from a documentarian who was sort of filming the uh, the Proud Boys for uh, several days previous. 
And so he was on the ground in a way that the rest of the media wasn't on the ground. And I don't think that he actually, I mean, he, he made pretty clear that he hadn't anticipated that this was what his documentary footage would turn up. But yeah. as a good documentarian, he filmed it. And uh, now the world has seen that the Proud Boys were in the on-deck circle, you know, way before uh, Trump uh, sent down his legions to march on the Capitol. They were they were there. They were the, uh, in a literal sense, the avant-garde. Uh, they were there first. <laughs> and the other thing that I found mind-boggling was the fact that there were almost no police there to protect the Capitol building. For, for anyone who participated in any of the big protests of the last decade or two, the Black Lives Matter protests, the Occupy Wall Street protests, any of the protests at the national political conventions, the weak police defense of the Capitol on January 6th is, is mind-blowing to see. This was actually suggested by Trevor Griffey on Twitter. We in LA, you know, you go downtown to a demonstration, there's hundreds of heavily armed cops, helmets, face shields, long batons, and what they call, you know, their non-lethal weapons. Nothing like that at the Capitol. And, you know, it's hard for me to understand why that was. The Stop the Steal rally was not a secret. Trump had said it was going to be wild. They showed video of Steve Bannon the night before saying all hell is going to break loose. So this was not exactly a secret. I, I don't understand why Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police didn't take the measures that any police department would have. Well, I mean, it's nominally under the control of Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Uh, I suspect both of them just assumed, you know, it would be a, a, a whatever the Capitol Police decided would be sufficient because that had always stood them in good stead before. It's hard to actually pin down what happened there. And it's quite possible that the Capitol Police leaders concluded that since the Trump, President Trump and his legions wanted to make a strong showing uh, that they, you know, they would, wouldn't would appear to be discriminatory and really mount uh, all kinds of uh, militarized efforts uh, of the sort you alluded to when normal demonstrations happen. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, would, they wouldn't mount those. You know, that clearly was a, uh, a cosmic miscalculation. Let's talk about Liz Cheney. A lot of people see her as the hero of, of these hearings. What did you think of Liz Cheney? Well, I think there are a lot of heroes of, of, of this hearing, but there seems to be sort of an informal division of labor in which the committee chair, Benny Thompson of Mississippi, sort of sets uh, kind of a broad context and uh, the role of Liz Cheney as the ranking minority member. There are only two Republicans on the committee because those are the only ones who uh, felt that January 6th was worth investigating. Uh, Liz Cheney has been given the role of sort of laying out the specifics of uh, the allegations in a kind of uh, a summary fashion. And, and she's done that extremely well. The other thing she's done is, is held her Republican colleagues, uh, you know, uh, responsible uh, um, in, in their neglect of, uh, of, of dealing with this and of then the persistence of the big lie, noting that, you know, one day Trump will be gone, but uh, their shame will, uh, will go down in history. Uh, so she, And she's, she makes very powerful presentations. Yesterday, we got a letter from Liz Cheney. 
It started out, America needs leaders who are not afraid to do what's right regardless of the political fallout. I will never forget my duty to defend the Constitution. Close quote. So far, so good. But the next paragraph says, quote, with Build Back Better and the Green New Deal, the Democrats' radical agenda is on full display. Build Back Better is nothing but a slush fund for the Democrats' radical socialist wish list. We must stop their extreme plans. I need you on my team today, exclamation point. Please make your generous check out to Liz Cheney from Wyoming, $100, $1,000, or $2,900, which is the legal limit. Together, we will stand strong against the Biden administration's all-out attack on our nation's fundamental principles. Close quote, Liz Cheney. Well, look, Liz Cheney is running in the Republican primary in Wyoming, which I think gave Trump either his largest or second largest majority on a percentage basis. And that letter totally expresses who she is, which is a uh, devoutly right-wing Republican. It just so happens that on, you know, the Donald Trump question, one thing she's demonstrating is that you can be a devoutly right-wing Republican with all kinds of the biases and prejudices that go into that and still reject Donald Trump and all he stands for. That's, that's who she is. You, you remarked earlier that, well, the second day was about the origins of the big lie. This is hardly the first time Trump has launched a, a com- campaign based on lies. Remind us where, where this all began with Donald Trump. Well, I Trump. mean, look, it all began in his misrepresentation of his uh, career and construction in New York decades ago uh, and his self-promotion on page six of the New York Post and things like that. But, and he kind of enters into American politics by arguing uh, absent all evidence and uh, contrary to all existing evidence that Barack Obama was born in Africa. That's how he begins. Th- th- this continues uh, his, his campaign declaration speech when he uh, uh, came down the escalator in Trump Tower in Manhattan uh, you know, talked about uh, Mexican murderers and rapists acts uh, in the absence of, of any evidence that immigrants have a higher, in fact, have a lower rate of uh, commission of violent crimes, so on and so on and so on. So that, that which is why I wrote, it's not anything new that he's been detached from reality. It's harder to find any instances when he's been attached. <laughs> so uh, there's a Important piece by your colleague Robert Kuttner at Prospect.org reviewing kind of the the politics of all this. You know, we're all wondering, is this going to, how how many Republicans are these hearings going to reach? Kuttner reports that polls, the latest polls show only about one third of voters are really hardcore Trump defenders. 60% of everybody of, of likely voters said they're less likely to vote for a candidate who defends the January 6th insurrection. That's good to know because 60% are not Democrats. But uh, even if most voters agree that Trump is a, you know, a criminal and a delusional liar, that doesn't make Democrats automatically the winners of the midterms. Democrats win when they emphasize bread and butter pocketbook issues. This has been true for about 75 years. And, um, they need to do a better job uh, on, on that front. Remind us about that front. 
Well, actually, it's been true for 90 years. That's when Franklin <laughs> Roosevelt was uh, was first elected president. Uh, it was actually 90 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But, you know, the one bread and butter issue that is probably uppermost in uh, voters' minds right now uh, is inflation. And that is not really helping the Democrats and Joe Biden. It's the kind of problem that's global, which means that uh, elected officials in any one country will have trouble doing anything about it. Uh, If anyone can do anything about it, the conventional wisdom is that it's the Federal Reserve, which is busily raising interest rates. But yeah, I mean, the polls on whether Trump is culpable or not are one thing, but they're clearly not in any polling of people's ranking of the most important issues uh, that they're going to take into the voting booth uh, with them uh, next November. It's not It's not at the top. It may not be even near the top. Uh, at the top is inflation and the economy. And uh, then there's what the Supreme Court is about to do on abortion and maybe guns. Those are those are really the main electoral issues. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. What's this I hear about Microsoft? Yeah, Microsoft has just done a man bites dog thing. <laughs> uh, they have become the only major corporation that I know of in America that is now saying, oh, it's OK if I un- uh, if our workers uh, unionize, we're not going to oppose it. Earlier this week, they released an agreement with the Communication Workers of America, which is one of America's most together, most uh, innovative unions, that uh, when they uh, complete their purchase of Activision Blizzard, they're not going to oppose those workers' efforts to unionize, and they expect to go to just to have a a card check uh, validated, and they'll go to bargaining with, uh, with the CWA. Uh, Earlier, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Brad Smith, who was the president of Microsoft, released a kind of fascinating statement saying they were fine with this for the whole of Microsoft, for all 181,000 employees. And so I I wrote a piece that is uh, uh, being posted on the prospect on Wednesday afternoon as we speak that says, you know, where is Microsoft coming from? (laughs) Uh, Because this is the complete opposite of the other two huge corporations, you know, the, the, the world famous based in Washington state, like Microsoft, as Microsoft is, uh, Amazon and, uh, and Starbucks. And I think it's coming from two places. First of all, there were some antitrust issues about it buying Activision. I think they conclude that since workers are going to be better off uh, under, under Microsoft, uh, uh, that a lot of those issues are going to be dispelled. But I think more importantly, in the statement that the uh, uh, Microsoft's president, Mr. Smith, released uh, two weeks ago, he said, look, it's clear to us that unionization is rolling across America and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to uh, probably come to Microsoft, too. I mean, we're just we're going to accept that. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Microsoft is in competition with companies like uh, Google and Facebook and the tech side of Amazon for talented young programmers, uh, for techies. You know, when a young techie who belongs to a generation that Gallup says has an incredible 77% uh, approval rating for unions, when a young techie is looking for where to work and uh, if if he or she should switch jobs, 
they, they might well prefer a company that accepts a modicum of worker power that comes with unionization than to go to, uh, you know, the house of uh, Zuckerberg and uh, Bezos, who are, uh, you know, want, wants to stomp on that. And, and so I think what's clear is that Microsoft probably thinks that among the kind of people it wants to attract and keep on its payroll, it's a competitive advantage over its immediate rivals to let the workers know that if they want a union, they can have one. Now, at the moment, that's sheer heresy uh, in in American corporate boardrooms. But if it proves correct, I would expect more corporate boardrooms are going to say, okay, if that's the price of doing business with the kind of workers we need, maybe we should go there. We we shall see. This is all speculation on my part, but uh, could be. Thank you for that. And one more thing, the LA mayor's race, big news on reported on Tuesday, Karen Bass has pulled ahead of Rick Caruso. Uh, Right now she has 41% and he has 38%. This is the guy who hoped he was going to get 50%. Uh, And there's lots more votes to be counted. But uh, Karen Bass forces are optimistic that that she will end up in first place when when the rest of the mail-in ballots are counted in the next whatever days and weeks to come. I think that's true. I, th- I think she will end up in first place. Of course, if Caruso was Donald Trump, he would be <laughs> arguing that only the ballots counted on election night right. uh, are, were, were the ones that counted. No, and and this is this is a pattern that's becoming clear down ballot too, as some council more progressive council candidates are doing better uh, in some cases uh, than their rivals or their the incumbents they're seeking to oust. Let's mention in this context, Eunice's Hernandez, who's pulled ahead of incumbent councilman Gil Cedillo. Right now, she's ahead by, I guess it's 292 votes, and she has 50.7%, which would put her on the city council um, next, next January. Of course, Thousands more votes to be counted. You know, I remember Gil Cedillo when he was the only politician in California really campaigning to get uh, driver's licenses for undocumented residents of California. Uh, Eunice Hernandez is, was pretty much the only credible candidate campaigning for defunding the police. So I don't know if that's an odd kind of symmetry or what, but. Certainly, the uh, trends in vote counting right now are favorable to the more progressive options. Harold Meyerson on the odd symmetry in LA politics. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about the recall last week of the progressive DA of San Francisco, Chesa Boudin. The final tally was 55 in favor of the recall, 45 opposed. Pundits everywhere are saying this is a message to Democrats to abandon their efforts to reform police departments and do something about the deep racial iniquities in the criminal justice system. 
They say San Francisco is telling Democrats it's time for law and order politics and cracking down on the homeless. Peter Dreyer doesn't think that's what Democrats should conclude. He's a distinguished professor of politics at Occidental College, former newspaper reporter, community organizer, senior policy advisor to former Boston Mayor Ray Flynn, and the author of seven books, the most recent of which published this year are Baseball Rebels, The Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America, and a companion volume, Major League Rebels, Baseball Battles Over Workers' Rights and American Empire. He's also a contributor to The Nation. Peter Dreyer, welcome back. Thank you, John. Okay, the district attorney lost a recall battle in San Francisco. Chesa Boudin, committed progressive, terrific person, also a, uh, a contributor to The Nation a guest on this podcast a couple of times. He wanted to end over incarceration. He wanted to end cash bail. He wanted to stop the prosecution of minors as adults. And he wanted to start filing homicide charges against city police officers who killed people unjustly. But let's start with how he got elected in the first place two years ago. His defeat, you wrote at Talking Points Memo, quote, should not have been a surprise if you know how he won election in 2019. And that's because San Francisco has an unusual voting system. Tell us about it. It's called uh, ranked choice voting. A couple of cities have it. And basically what happens is you vote for as many candidates as you want and you rank them. And the candidate that comes in last of all the ballots, those uh, votes are redistributed to the people that got your second or then your third or then your fourth until somebody gets 50% plus one. And so that's how Chesa Bodine got elected. It's hard to say that he had a real mandate for the progressive agenda that he was pushing. And immediately after he got elected, a lot of the Republican billionaires, in not only in San Francisco, but in the larger Bay Area, and the police unions began to organize to, uh, to stop him, implementing his agenda and to try to recall him. They, they were talking about recall from the day he took office. And in addition to that, um, there have been some high profile crimes in San Francisco and clearly a big homeless population. And he became the, the scapegoat basically for those public safety issues that people had, even though his job, his office wasn't responsible for dealing with those issues. And in fact, crime went down, major crime categories went down while he was the DA. So he got 36% of the first round votes two years ago, and then he got 45% in the recall. So he actually improved nine points, but not enough to win the recall. And of course, a recall is a yes or no choice, which is very different from running a, uh, against a specific challenger. Yes, he wasn't running against somebody who had a different point of view. And when people are angry, they say, you know, kick out the people who are now in office. Right? Well, let's talk about the other district attorney elections in the Bay Area last week. On the other side of the Bay Bridge in Alameda County, the city of Oakland, there was a contest for district attorney. Uh, what happened there? Another progressive woman named Pamela Price, a civil rights lawyer, running on basically the same kind of platform that Chesa Bodin had. Uh, came in first in the DA election with 40% uh, of the vote in a uh, four-person race. She's going to have to uh, run in a runoff against the person who came in second. 
who was a kind of law and order candidate that got 31% of the vote. So the voters of nearby Alameda County had a very different perspective. And then in Contra Costa County, which is also in the Bay Area, a former judge, also a progressive like, like Bodine, Diana Becton, she's, our, she's the incumbent. And she won with 57% of the vote against a, a law and order prosecutor. And so um, even in the Bay Area, you see very different outcomes. So there are things unique to San Francisco, which helped to defeat Bodine, but it's really silly to try to um, generalize that that tells you something about what the Democratic Party should be doing about criminal justice all over the country. And these three progressive district attorney candidates uh, in the Bay Area, of course, part of a national movement. The first progressive prosecutor in the United States to win election was Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Chesa was second. Los Angeles, George Gascon was third. And there have been some more since then in the last couple of years. Remind us about that. There have been over a dozen progressive district attorneys and prosecutors elected all over the country in Chicago and Boston in Austin, Texas, in Corpus Christi, Texas, in rural Georgia, in Ohio, and in Philadelphia, where Larry Krasner won, and in Chicago, where Kim Fox was elected, the uh, progressive DA, they've both already been reelected. And so uh, there's no evidence that there's a, a backlash against these progressive district attorneys around the country, but there was a backlash in San Francisco. And I think the lesson is what goes out in San Francisco stays in San Francisco. (laughs) Well, there is coming a challenge to the progressive prosecutor in Los Angeles, organized by the same forces, the police unions, the conservative uh, billionaires. In LA, there's a campaign underway right now to gather signatures to put the recall of George Gascon on the ballot in November. Uh, they got another couple of weeks. The deadline is July 6th to come up with 566,000 validated signatures. How are they doing in in, uh, getting enough signatures to get the recall of George Gascon in LA on the November ballot? So uh, George Gascon was uh, elected uh, DA of LA County, the largest county in the country. He beat a pro-police law and order incumbent. And as soon as he got sworn in, the same forces, the police unions, the prosecutors unions inside his own office, and right-wing billionaires like Jeff Palmer, the one of the wealthiest people in, in Los Angeles, who was a, a big Trump supporter, other people like that, they immediately began a recall campaign against George Gascon. And they actually weren't able to get enough signatures the first time they tried this. So they're trying again. I think the defeat of uh, Bodine uh, gives them a little more momentum. And I would not be surprised if they get the roughly half a million signatures they need. But again, the voters are not talking about criminal justice, basically money versus people. You've got these billionaires and these one order cops unions, prosecutor unions that basically want to go back to the old ways of lock them up and throw away the key. And public opinion polls in San Francisco and L.A. show what they don't like is, you know, seeing lots of homeless people on the street. And that's a housing and mental health problem, not a criminal justice problem for the DA. But they've got to take some responsibility for it. And George Gascon, I think, is a much better politician than Chase Bodine was in San Francisco. He's got a much broader coalition. He won by a much bigger margin when he ran for. And it's going to be a tough race. 
but I think he'll be able to do it because he's much more popular. And I also think he's been quite effective uh, as the DA. But unlike Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who the, you know, within a month or two after he took office, he fired all the prosecutors in his office that didn't agree with his progressive views about incarceration and treating children as adults in the criminal justice system and so forth. Neither Bodine nor uh, George Cascona, under civil service laws, they can't get rid of those people in their own office. And so in L.A. in particular, and also in San Francisco, the prosecutors are not happy with having a progressive boss, and the police are not happy. And in both cities, the police are telling people on the street, they're basically already campaigning against Cascone. They're telling people that, that he shouldn't be elected, which is not something that police should be doing. But importantly, they're not investigating a lot of cases. They're basically, I wouldn't call it a strike, but it's a slowdown. Yeah. The cops are not doing their jobs. And then they're blaming Gascon, as they did Boudin, for uh, whatever increases in crime there are. And of course, this all takes place during the pandemic when people were desperate. And there was an increase in every city in the country, practically, in homicides particularly, ironically, in cities like Jacksonville, Florida, and Oklahoma City that have Republican DAs and Republican mayors. So this is not a Democratic thing. So homelessness is especially a big problem in California. Lots of homeless people want to be in California because it's not cold in the winter. But that, that does impose a tremendous burden on whoever is in office. A lot of people in our cities, Democratic cities, Republican cities, as well as some suburbs, don't like seeing encampments of homeless people, some of them urinating you know, in public and some of them using drugs. But the crime problem is separate from the homeless problem. Most of the people that commit crimes in LA and San Francisco are not homeless. But this, the, uh, the recall supporters conflated those two issues, knowing that people don't like this sense of public disorder. And that is something that we need to deal with. And we need to deal with it by building more affordable housing, protecting tenants from eviction, providing more mental health services for people, not sweeping people off the streets and sending them to jail. But the sense of our cities are out of control, whether they're Republican or Democratic cities, is definitely something that right-wingers are taking advantage of, just like Richard Nixon did, just like Ronald Reagan did, you know, the law and order candidates. And I think we have to deal with that. And we have to deal with that in L.A. when it comes to the next uh, mayor, when Rick Caruso, the billionaire mall developer, is basically running on a platform of sweeping the homeless off the streets and throwing them in jail against Karen Bass, who's got a much more compassionate but pragmatic way of looking at it. But so far, uh, Rick Caruso is outspent in the primary. He outspent Karen Bass 11 to 1. Now that they're both in a runoff, Karen Bass will have a lot more money. She'll be able to go toe-to-toe with Caruso. She'll have a much bigger get-out-the-vote effort because the labor unions will now unite behind her. And uh, I think that Rick Caruso will not win. But the fact that he was able to get 40% of the vote uh, in the primary tells you two things. One, people are concerned about what they see as public disorder. And secondly, if you have enough money, you can practically win almost anything in American politics. 
but um, I think Karen Bass will be able to meet him uh, with, uh, with equal amount of money in the runoff. So I'm more optimistic than some people are about the mayor's race in LA. Peter Dreyer teaches at Occidental College and writes for, among other places, The Nation magazine. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.